Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all right? Welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I am Eric. On this episode, we're taking a look at the new Leica M6 and what it means, if anything at all, to the film community and industry. We'll have Jess Hobbs and Danielle, girl with too many cameras, Marie, to help us out as we discuss this weirdly topical topic. But before that, we'll be talking to Polaroid photographer Lisa Tobas about ghosts, horror, and how her work isn't your typical instant snaps. We've also got the answering machine and a zine review. So wind up your radios, Dementites and Dementoids. It's time for another episode of All Through a Lens. Uh, but first, Vanya. Mm-hmm. How have you been? Oh, I've been great. Have you been great? I've been wonderful. Oh my God, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> Things are, you know, going. I do have some good stuff happening. I borrowed some cameras. So I'm kind of trying some new stuff for funsies. I've been snorkeling a ton. What cameras are you borrowing? Wide Lux and MP4. That's a, that's a Leica MP4. That's two less than the new one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I'm really fancy now, you guys. I'm really pulling out ahead of the rest of us here. It's a little strange. It's weird, but it's been it's been fun. I'm also been getting a little bit of work done on the Rolling Marine, but I will talk about that at the end of the episode. Okay. For now, I kind of want to complain just a t- teeny tiny bit about price gouging. I love complaining about price gouging. Okay. It's free. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, got this platform. So here it is. I'm going to hashtag bitch it out right now. Okay. Price I gouging. hate it when you make a deal with somebody mm-hmm. and they accept the deal and then they unaccept the deal and give it to a camera store instead of a person who's actually going to shoot the film. So then the camera store can sell the film for twice as much money and get profit off of it, even though it's expired and it might not work at all. Wow. This went from fairly vague to almost specific. What are you talking about? Someone sent me a message about just like a shit ton of 220 and I was really excited and I was like, I'm putting this on my credit card. Like, I don't care. This is an investment because this is really going to give me a couple years extra to shoot my Pentax 645 in the water. The reason why I want 220 is because it gives me 33 shots. That's a lot of shots for medium format. It's 645 format. That's the whole purpose. Why I got this housing specifically. So yes, I could do 120. I can, but it just makes more sense to have double the shots. It's a lot of swimming. So yeah, it's a lot less time out of the water changing roles. Exactly. Exactly. I just don't have like that kind of time. So hell no. It's, it was kind of a bummer, you know, Um, they obviously wanted the whole lot. So he sold the whole lot to, or whoever it was, sold the whole lot to, you know, the camera store, which is, I guess I get it. But I was, I like had messaged like, can you just like 
tell them to chill and give me one box? Like, how greedy can you be? Like, he's not going to even use any of this. It's literally just going to be sitting there for sale. And that makes me so irritated. And I'm not buying any of it because I would rather cut my nose off than buy film from this ad, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> well, you're mixing your metaphors, maybe, but I do see your point. I did want to mention one thing. Um, and this is like directly to a lot of the listeners. Thank you so much for trading and sending me to 20 film. I really, really appreciate it. I think that sometimes you just focus on the negative. <laughs> and what I should do is focus on the positive. Because recently, I have received a bunch of film from people, and I do appreciate it very, very much. And I hope that I can repay all of you at some point with something. So um, it's very sweet and kind. And I am super down for trades at any time. So yeah, like if you guys don't have use for it, I do. And I will trade you something else for it, obviously, or barter or, you know, pay for it. I'm not trying to get anything for free, of course. But yeah, I just like really love this film. And it's kind of a bummer that um, it's I just don't have many options. Yeah. Well, you're acting like your golden voice isn't repayment enough for these people. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> if they want a splitting migraine, then yes, continue listening to to me, I guess. Tanya, <laughs> the, the, the source of migraines. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I I guess like a little good, you know, and some bad, but for the most part, pretty fucking good, you guys. Pretty okay. good. Okay. And how are you? I'm um I'm actually okay. I haven't been doing a whole lot of photography things lately. Weird. Is it? It's winter, so I'm kind of like holding back a little bit. Mm. But I've recently had this rare pleasure of seeing 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning. Ooh. And it was projected from 16 millimeter. Ooh. I don't think, I'm pretty sure I'd never seen it on the big screen before. And it was a print that had you know, a few scenes that were taken out and a few that were new to me. And really? a couple of like weird, like, alternate stuff near the end. So the guy who bought it from MGM back in probably the 40s, soon after it was released, he chopped the movie up into different cuts depending on where it would play. So which cut you see now depends on which cut is available for that, you know, that cut that you have. It sort of makes sense. Unfortunately, it's not really available on Blu-ray at the moment. And it's only streaming on various sites, including for free on archive.org. So if you haven't seen Todd Browning's Freaks, you, you should. It's a really fun, interesting, but also important movie. Yeah. And it's a movie that I think really deserves a Criterion edition. Mm -hmm. The history of this film is quickly being lost if it's not gone already. And it's a real shame that it's not, it's not really seen as an important film. You know? Which is unfortunate because I think it is. I think it's a it's a very, at least in my my world, it was very very important. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the films that kind of kicked off the midnight movies in the '60s or '70s when it was kind of rediscovered. Mm -hmm. And it was always one of those movies that were like when you're in high school and you're just discovering like weird ass movies. This was one of those. You know, it was like Eraserhead, maybe Blood of a Poet. 
and and this one, and maybe like the, the Salvador Dali movie with like the razor blade on the eyeball. You know, it was these movies that were kind of like rumors and like, oh, we heard this movie existed. And, yeah. and I watched it actually when I was pretty young, but I was also obsessed with the circus because I wanted to join the circus as that was, I had a life plan at six. I already knew what I was going to do. And that was to join the circus. So any kind of circus movie I was always going to watch. How did you see it? Was it on, I guess it was on VHS. It must've been on VHS. It must've been a rental, I guess. I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it being in like MGM had like oversized VHS boxes mm-hmm. that you opened sort of like a gatefold sort of, you opened it up and kind of recessed inside was the videotape. Odd. So I had this very small movie rental place down the street from my dad's house. It was mm-hmm. not like a blockbuster. It was just like kind of like a mom and pop shop. Sure. Yeah. So that. I would go there and get stuff because my dad didn't care what I got. So I would get all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time it was just labyrinth because I was like obsessed with Bowie in that, like the cod piece, the hair, the singing. It's, I mean, come on, we, you can't go wrong. If that was not there, then I would get something else. So that same night, that, that same theater has uh, played a few shorts before the movie. Fun. And one of them was a Three Stooges short that was meant to be viewed in 3D. They actually filmed it in 3D. No way. We only had the 2D version, but it had like these really weird scenes of stuff coming at you, like Moe's fingers, you know, you'd, you'd poke them in the eyes, Boink. right? But it was like really slow towards the camera. It was it was very bizarre and absolutely oh worth seeing. I would love to see it in 3D. So that was one VHS box set that my dad did have because it was either like opera or the Three Stooges. <laughs> so those were my options as a child if like we didn't rent movies. So I, if you were wondering why I am the way I am, it's probably because I watched way too much Three Stooges as a kid. <laughs> Who would you be of the Three Stooges? Um, I could see, yeah, I want to say curly, but I'm not sure. Kinda. Maybe. A lot of weird noises escape your mouth. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I'm maybe the other one that's kind of like in between, you know what I mean? Kind of Larry? a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's not me. It's him. Or what about yeah. the other guy? Was his name? Sh- uh, well, there was Shemp and this one included Shemp. Shemp. Yeah. Nice. There was also Curly Joe Dorita and <gasps> Joe Besser. Really? There were five, I think there were six. Huh. Yeah. My brother used to always do that. I, I haven't asked him to do it in a long time. I'm going to have to call him up and You'll ask him to, to do, do <laughs> curly noises for me. Okay. Every time I see the Three Stooges, I love it, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's something that I would ever just put on. <gasps> you know what I mean? Like if it's there and I don't have much of a choice in it, I have to watch it. But mm-hmm. I always really enjoy it. Because it's mm-hmm. it's well done. I mean, they they were geniuses at comedy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's something I would put on. It's like Billy Joel. Like when you're in the supermarket <laughs> and you hear a Billy Joel song, you're just like, oh, right. This is pretty yeah. good. What the fuck yeah. is this? Oh, it's fucking Billy Joel. But it's so catchy. Like, Surprise Billy Joel is great. But you wouldn't go home and put on a Billy Joel record. But as for photography, I haven't shot a single shot in weeks. I am in developing mode and I'm I'm really enjoying developing. I have still have a bunch of roles left over from the summer trip and I'll usually do two or three roles at once, but now I'm doing like one at a time and kind of savoring it. I'm really enjoying developing. Nice. Yeah. But other than that, 
It's kind of like baking, you know? It's like you were out and now you're just inside, you know, developing or baking yeah. because it's cold and you're going to get cozy. And that, that applesauce cake isn't going to be good. It's not. Each episode, Eric and I... I guess live together in this this world that we've made up and we have an answering machine in this in this house. I'm assuming the house is probably kind of like circa 70s. I'm just going to say we'll do some shag here and there, you know. It's going to be cluttered, lots of crazy stuff. Um and we have of course a like old maybe like fake brown wood plastic answering machine. Naturally. And it's kind of like in the foyer of the house, I would say. Yeah, I can see that right, right when you come in. Yeah. Um, if you have any, if, if this is your first time listening to us, this is what we do. We ask our, our listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird ass question we come up with. And Vanya, what was the what was the question this week? If you were asked to take photos at someone's funeral, how would you go about it? We do have a Patreon and we do get... S- a, a decent amount of money coming in each month. And I, and I figure we should start spending this money on things that are essential and critical to the functionality of All Through a Lens. And this time around, we hired somebody to read the answering machine outgoing message for us. So uh, Vanya, could you, could you push the button, please? <gasps> yes, I don't even know what's happening. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hi, this is Britney Spears, and sometimes my friend can't come to the phone, and this is one of those times. So leave a message at the beep, and baby, they'll call you back one more time. And thanks for calling. Hi, guys. Michael here. So to even consider doing such a task, I need to know the family and or the deceased pretty well. Moreover, I lean more into digital, because I'd like to be as unobtrusive as possible. And I think full silent electrical shutter and the camera that doesn't look like an interesting object overall allows me to do it. Unless, of course, the family are a huge film fans, then I'd go and try to catch it on black and white or something. The general goal, however, is to document it properly, like somewhere between focusing too much on the lines on the tombstone and causing even more trauma to the mourners by sticking the lens to their faces. Cheers, guys. Not many podcasts would be brave enough to smash cut between Britney Spears reading an outgoing (laughs) message and the somber, dulcet tones of Michael, but we are that podcast. So what do you think about that, Vanya? He, He would choose digital because of the silent shutter. Yeah, I can see that. I did that. I I've done it. And you have shot a funeral. I mean, we're, we don't want to bury the lead here. Mm-hmm, yeah, have shot a funeral and I use both. And okay. the digital was kind of like for some video stuff too. And I did capture some great uh, clips that are, I think, just worth like keeping, you know, when th- they had like bagpipes playing when he came out of, you know. Wait, when who came out? He didn't come out of the fucking coffin, <laughs> but he came out of the church oh, okay. and he went into the, you know, so we can go to the like graveyard, <laughs> you know, the cemetery. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. 
Like, we got a surprise for you at the funeral. Guess who's coming back? <laughs> Dude, that's actually kind of sick. You know, you guys are so glad that I don't have any money because my funeral would <laughs> be so stupid. I'm so sorry, you guys. Okay. So recently we... we I remember watching something or hearing something from an old-timey photographer who switched to a Leica because it was very silent. Do you remember who that yeah. was? No, but I do remember that. It was something. Don't you remember? They were taking pictures of something and it needed somewhat silence, and so they would use a Leica. And it surprised me they used a Leica, but I don't remember who that was. Was it? Oh, I do. It was these the carnival strippers. It was. You're right. Yeah, look at that. That's in short term still. When it comes back into long term, then I'll remember it. <laughs> Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Hannah Grace. Long time, no call. I'm actually calling in from outside a cemetery on the property of the Ridges, which was a asylum here in Athens, Ohio, back in the day. So, you know, extra spooky vibes. But to answer your question, I think it would depend on who I'm talking to or who I'm photographing, like their funeral um, and who they were as a person. But I feel like I'd try to focus on joy, whether that's, you know, flowers or the party or however that looks and connections and relationships and all of that and not focus necessarily on the death. So that's, I think, what I would do. I don't know. I think it would have to definitely depend on the person and who they were. I think going in with like not just being hired to take pictures, that would be pretty difficult because there would be questions I would want to ask. But then also I would feel like like it was inappropriate for me to ask because they don't need to worry <laughs> about anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's interesting she th thinks about joy. It's I haven't been to a ton of funerals. But there is, you know, there is that coming together, mm -hmm. you know, and you're seeing people that you haven't seen in, in a long time. And so there is like an underlying current of joy there. You're happy to see these people. It sucks that it's under these circumstances, but you are happy to see them. Yeah. And there's always those like the stories and the yeah. conversations that you guys have. And there's a couple laughs like, oh, my gosh, they can, you know, it's just sure reminiscing about like this person's life and and what they what they did their entire life it's kind of it is a celebration in a way and i think that we should be more like i guess victorian in that way where we like not exactly romanticize death but just make that it's just part of of life in a way where it's not so scary i think it's going to require a lot of forethought like thinking about which photos you want in advance not a lot you don't want your energy of running around, messing with the, uh, the feel of the room. Probably a shot of the officiant, priest, or whoever you have up front. Maybe with the back of everyone's heads bowed, this sort of thing. Portraits don't seem right. That's where you wait for the, uh, the wake. That's where the real fun begins, I would think. Then you treat that more like a wedding. The funeral part, that's hard though. I would think about maybe 10 shots at most that I try to get, take them methodically. I've never been to a wake. We were Protestant. And well, you know, boring Protestant. And so we didn't have wakes. Hmm. That would be too too far away from misery. Is that and, when you get like together and eat food? Well, I, I guess so. Okay. Uh, I always think of Irish wakes. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, I grew up in near the coal region in Pennsylvania. So we did have a lot of 
a lot of wakes there, and they always seemed kind of... <laughs> I always thought they, were, they seemed most like bar mitzvahs, but I wasn't Jewish, and I've never been to a bar mitzvah, so my only... My only vision of bar mitzvahs is from TV. I guess I just kind of imagined wakes being like TV bar mitzvahs, but it would be interesting to shoot a wake like a wedding, I would suppose. I guess in a way it's pretty similar. To a reception, yeah. 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 He had already decided in his mind how he was going to go about it. Like, okay, I'm going to step back. This is how many shots I'm going to take because obviously you don't want to be the center of attention. You don't want, it's not like a wedding where they want you to get in there and take those pictures. You kind of have to just like get the shot and be done with it, which is um, kind of what I did, honestly. And I did end up getting a couple of really great shots. It was just like so, it was just memorable and beautiful. Funerals are one of the most important parts of our lives. And Generally speaking, we don't have photographs of them. We have photographs of everything else, else from from births to birthdays to, you know. And now more than ever. Yeah, and especially now more than ever, but we just don't really have photos of funerals. If we look through our photo albums and our parents' photo albums, we're not gonna see funeral photos. If I just happen to die like in the next couple years and I'm still on Instagram, will you do me a favor? Will you just log in to Surf Martian and just go live when <laughs> when it's my funeral? Um yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, and we have one final Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Ben Yaunt and uh, I have shot two funerals. And the last one I did was a professional job. I got paid to do it. And um, so here we go. Like the way I did it was I used a digital camera. I put it on silent shutter. And uh, I used a multiple um, lenses from a 24 all the way up to a 50. And I took pictures. People want to have these moments, uh, like these celebration of life pictures to look back on. And I feel that these are some of my best photos I've ever taken. And yet I can't show them to anyone. When shooting a funeral, it's important that, you know, it is a life event, but it is not like a wedding. You don't have a list of people that you're going to be getting portraits of. You may have some portraits that um, your client wants you to take pictures of. And so I will get those, but I don't normally go around shooting for fun times and portraits. Uh, it's more like people's backs, the flowers, everything like to um, commemorate that person. Uh, and I try to be as uh, quiet and as uh, unnoticeable as possible. So anyways, if you guys have any questions, let me know. Bye. Oh, it's so nice to hear from Ben. It's been like yeah, a long time. It has been. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. And That's two. And two of them, yeah, that's really and that's really impressive. And one of them professionally. Yeah, he knows how to stand back and be able to approach a situation in a different way, which is really which is really great. I must be so much pressure to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't. I honestly can't imagine it. I don't think I would. I know I wouldn't do it. Not morally. Just they 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 should get somebody better, <laughs> like with weddings. Yeah. I guess I could see that. I think I'm just like an emotional person. So I'll probably mm -hmm. cry at some point and I'll have to make sure that I'm somewhere by myself <laughs> so I can cry on my own because no one needs to see that. <laughs> I'm a very ugly crier, you guys. It's awful. Well, thank you to Michael, Hannah, Robert, and Ben for calling in. It was a tough question. I, I was a little worried that we weren't going to get much response, but I think y'all came through. Thank you so yeah. much. So if you want to hear our take on this, and, and hopefully Vanya will tell a I bit more. I don't have anything of, else, nah. 
<laughs> Hopefully she tells a little bit more of her story. Tune in to the next episode of Dev Party and we will do a little bit of answering on that. But Vanya, until then, what is the next question we'll be asking? If they no longer could make film and you had a single shot or roll left, what or where would you want to shoot with it? Yes. So call our answering machine and leave us a message. And of course, again, by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very, very much, we will play it on the next episode. The deadline for this is Tuesday, November 15th. Within the work of Lisa Tobos, you can see glimpses of uneasiness and even horror. She's influenced by Victorian spirit photography, which we discussed last Halloween and the Halloween before, as well as vernacular photographs, which we've also talked about, by the way. How do all these things come together to form Lisa's saturated and beautiful Polaroid prints? Let's find out. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so you're from uh, Pittsburgh? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you, you grew yeah. up in Pittsburgh? I did. I grew up in a little town called Coriopolis, which is on the Ohio River. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've lived here my whole life. Oh, really? Much, with a brief, a brief stint um, where I traveled for a while overseas and I was sort of vagabonding. When did you start shooting? I actually started shooting, like doing photography mm-hmm. when I was in grad school for my MFA in writing at the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. My friend Dan and I, I should have been writing, but we would go out and we, I would just always have my camera with me and, uh. We would just take photos. I didn't even, I didn't consider myself a photographer. I just liked doing it. And I was always visually drawn to photography, meaning like I, I used it as inspiration for writing. Hmm. And then it took a turn when I, when I graduated, I went to Croatia to teach English as a second language. Oh, wow. This was back in 2004, 2005. Um, I was in Osijek. It was like on the border of Serbia in the corner, like very close to the Hungarian and Serbian borders. So I would go to Hungary a lot. Like when you wanted to go to, uh, we would call it civilization. I'm being sort of (laughs) facetious because at the time, because the war had ended, um, maybe it was like nine years before, eight years before. That that sounds like a lot, but not in wartime. (laughs) So uh, there just wasn't a lot there. So I uh, I would take photos and I journaled, of course, but I, I felt like the camera was the journal. I had a little Canon. It was a Canon point and shoot. It was, but it was film, mm-hmm. and I would just walked everywhere and just took photos. and And then I came home and I just became more focused on photography. And I never really went back to writing fiction which was the plan. Oh, did you ever make the switch from film to digital? I did. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, I started out doing film and I was working at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh when I came home in like administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to take classes for free. So I did darkroom work Then I did digital for a few years. And then somebody I met online, because you know how the film community is. Everybody is like, 
here's some film or, you know, everyone, especially even more so as the years have gone on, mm -hmm. um, it's like a family. Yeah, absolutely. As, as you know. So uh, somebody gifted me a Spectra Ooh. and that's how I got started doing Polaroid. Yeah. Oh, okay. You have a very specific style to your Polaroid photos. How did, how, yeah. well, I mean, <laughs> how did your style <laughs> that you had, how did it evolve into what you do now? I think with anything, you just take a bunch of photos and then you start to see patterns emerge. And that's something I actually learned in grad school when you work, when I was working on my manuscript, you know, you're looking through st your stories and you're like, okay, here's these themes and here's, here are these characters and a certain voice comes through in the mm -hmm. writing. And I, I, I think that that's what happens with, or that's definitely what happens with photography is when you hit your voice, when you find your voice, it just becomes, becomes second nature. I feel like I really hit my stride when I got cancer and I was taking photos all the time, like even more than usual as, as far as Polaroids. Yeah. Um, I think I started thinking of photography as more of how they connect, like the photos connect. And I think that's where my voice was starting to come out. I would also say, too, the more I got to know the camera, because even if you have a brand new camera, you know how it is, like they're all finicky, like you have to learn how they capture that light, especially a Polaroid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like even if you have a brand new one or like a refurbished one and you know, okay, you know it's going to work, i.e. that the photo will come out, will eject, you still have to know like um, like my old SLR 680. So sometimes, sometimes a light leak would come through and I loved it because it made like these nice hazy edges. I mean, sometimes it wouldn't, sometimes it would. Mm -hmm. And you just got, you kind of learned when it was going to do that and when it wasn't. And that's yeah. kind of too how you can control to a certain extent what comes out of your Polaroid camera. Yeah. Just like knowing it. Yeah. If you know, if you know your light leak is there and you want it to work in the photo, then you're not going to cover it with black tape. You're going to let <laughs> it just be what it is. Yeah. 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 I know that you have mentioned that Victorian spirit photography has influenced your work, and I really want you to talk a little bit about that. I think in the, uh, the nascent days of the internet <laughs> i i used to keep a blog and i collect old photos and that's how i sort of came across morning photography mm -hmm. my husband and i started trying to collect those types of photos mm -hmm. um post-mortem photos mm -hmm. when i first learned about the practice probably anybody everyone thinks it's weird and creepy the more and more you look at photos and read like why the people did them you're like that's really it's just really beautiful yeah it's sweet you know how it is when you find out one bizarro thing or what you think is bizarro. You want to find out like, oh, you want to find out all the weird stuff. So yeah. then I started seeing like the um, the spirit photography where people like Mumbler, he started doing these because with good intentions, I guess that's debated. But I think oh, that it is. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that there is something on the other side, mm -hmm. you know, like as far as if there's a ghost or some kind of energy or what where does our where does that energy go yeah. when mm -hmm. we're gone i've always had an inner goth so <laughs> i've always like i've always been drawn to this i guess what people would consider the dark side mm -hmm. so i think too um when i had cancer i didn't think about death in a in a way that was um scary 
Mm-hmm. I actually found things like the spirit photography and reading about death, death culture, funeralia. I found it actually comforting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just a way to sort of like get past your fears. I think that when I started doing what, you know, what I called the spirit photography, I also feel like um, I liked the, the escapism of it. It made me feel less afraid. Yeah. And, uh, you said yeah. that horror movies were an influence as well what are maybe like some of your your go-to horror movies Mm, uh george romero's martin okay oh wow yeah (laughs) okay i have not no no i I need to it's on my list it's so good it's all shot around pittsburgh and braddock which is right outside pittsburgh and so it's kind of cool because even though it was shot in the 70s, a lot of, a lot of it still looks the same. I, I, I like the ambiguity mm-hmm. of the character of Martin. Like, you don't know if, what his deal is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Sentinel. I really love the Sentinel. I love the idea of, like, the, the big empty apartment building. And then there's, like, a bunch of people living there who were actually ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> They're like evil ghosts. <laughs> I saw that when I was way too young to see it, and it, it really freaked me out. Did it mess you up? Oh. I think so. Yeah, this might that it's might explain disturbing. a lot about me. Yeah, and uh, I love Spider Baby. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an it's annual like, favorite here. Yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, good, mm-hmm. good. Yeah, Spider Baby <laughs> is like. You know, if John Waters made horror films, as far as like for aesthetic, um, I, I would say like um, Rosemary's Baby would definitely be one. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. I guess the Sentinel is sim. I mean, it's not shot similarly, but it's the same where you're in like a sort of a big, empty feeling apartment building where mm-hmm. something may or may not happen. <laughs> but, but thinking about it, like I I'm drawn to like space like empty space which if a lot of my photos it's just me in a in a room with not many props or anything Mm -hmm. so i think those those movies the 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 feeling of the emptiness the space is what i'm drawn to and like what can you fill in that space a lot of your work is self-portraits like most of that is and and a lot of that your your face is covered when i started doing self-portraiture i thought of myself more as a character in a story Mm -hmm. So I didn't, it didn't matter. Like my, my face wasn't important. It was more like capturing the movement in the moment. Yeah. So when you're doing that, it's like, if it were a film still, you're not always going to see somebody's face. I think that's where I was at that point. Okay. I think now it's more about the body interacting with the space as object. Yeah. When I think of people, when they're doing very vulnerable self-portraits, when you are showing your face, mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. I don't see it as about me, Yeah, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. In some of your photos, you've like added glitter to the print. And this is something that you can't really exactly do in camera. Do you feel that it's important to like add things to certain stuff to make a point? Is it just kind of like, hmm, I'm do this. I would say majority of the time it's after. Occasionally I will shoot something with the intention of, doing some kind of glitter or collage onto mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I will shoot something and I look at it and it just feels like something is to me is missing. It's very rare that I will take another shot. It like those, the shots that you see, that's 
almost always the only one. If I feel like I love this image, but it's just there's something missing from it. What what can I do with this? Mm-hmm. That's when I will go back and do that. I love when photos give a more three-dimensional look to them. Like if somebody's mm-hmm. if it looks like somebody's crawling out of the photo. Like I love that texture and that the trick of the eye. I, yeah. I love that. In some of the photos, there there's like fairy lights. This is, I was think, looking at him, I go, that's like a double exposure or that's in post, but those are, that's happening in real time when you're shooting that, right? Yeah. The Spectra had a, had a special filter pack with it mm-hmm. and they're just little plastic filters. And that's the one is the F101. And that's the one I use, you know, I used up all my Spectra, so that's done. Yeah, yeah, RIP. Yeah, I, I'm at peace with it. I, okay. I actually was wanting to just get rid of it because I was really sad. And then I was just like, I just, I'm done with this because it was just jamming. And hmm. some of them, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie, the last, the last uh, few packs, I wasn't sad. I was actually pissed off because I was like, oh, my God. None of these are turning out. I I shot off three packs and I think I have six. Oh, no. Yeah. uh, It's okay. I feel a little bit of that. I think with like pack film too, just and with the price and everything, it's, I need to just mourn the loss of that and be done with it. (laughs) No, exactly. That's what I was like. Someone had forwarded me a link about, oh, look, this person's selling the Spectra. And I was like, no. Yeah. and I was really proud of myself. I was like, yeah. I'm done. Changing gears a little bit, you've had some of your work removed by Instagram. Mm-hmm. And so with Instagram being really, really intertwined with the film community, yeah. how detrimental do you think this type of censorship is to film in general? I mean, I obviously think it's bullshit. See, I really love Instagram. I love I love the platform and meeting people and interacting with people and seeing the art and posting. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why it was blocked, to be honest. I have no idea why. Hmm. Someone said it may have been, I think in the photo, there was like my arm was in the way. So someone said it might have been like a boob. Oh, okay. <laughs> like someone thought it was like a dirty photo. I don't know. It's just... <laughs> But when, when people's profiles get deleted because someone reports them, I just, that makes me really, really angry and heartbroken. I actually mm-hmm. get heartbroken because people are putting their work out there and their heart and their soul. And it takes a long time to connect with people and to have to start over. Oh, yeah. It's just, that's how a lot of art gets seen now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is yeah. social media. It's not like it used to be. Absolutely. I mean, this is how we're making connections with other artists and having like a little support system with everybody. It also makes you realize how dependent we are on Mm -hmm. the platform. Yeah. I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think for someone like me, who's an introvert, you know, obviously during things like cancer, a pandemic, like that was like, one of my few lifelines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You work for Analog Forever magazine. So tell us how you got involved in that. Well, Michael Balin, he is the publisher mm-hmm. and um, I've known him online for a lot, almost, oh my God, it's been almost 10 years. They needed a copy editor and he knows that that's, I do that work. So I just jumped in for one of the issues. And then they were like, hey, do you want to write for us too? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and like, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't, 
I don't know what to write about photography. I know that sounds weird because I do photography, but it's like a whole other bag when you're like talking about it. Yeah. And oh, asking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We each do an interview and an article. So we do two things. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the role is of the of the print magazine in the film community? It's kind of taking taking film to back to its roots to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like having um I, I know from a writing perspective, and I think it's still this way, even though with in the digital age, people still want to be published in print. Like yeah. that's still a huge, huge deal. And I think that's mm. even the case with art, mm. you know. Um, well, I think probably the equivalent would be like the exhibition. Yeah. Um, photography being, a, I would say, a little more democratic that I, I think it, it's a good place to have in print yeah and then that way people can kind of you can it's like carrying a little art exhibition around with you and having it at your disposal to look through all the time like a little portable art exhibition yeah i like that i like that yeah when you have something in print i feel like the you know the articles are a lot more in depth than maybe what you would see online yeah Mm -hmm. uh, i feel like um Maybe it makes people stop and pay more attention. And, and that's why I think we're always like so into telling people to make zines of their work because there is a, a satisfying thing to see something printed. You're just like, ah, this is amazing because screen is like fine, whatever. But if it's just in front of you and it's you could touch it and turn the page, it's it's kind of amazing. So when you put something in print as well, it's. As well, like, or even thinking of it in the exhibition, you see the photos. I think when you take them out of the context of online, it's much different to see it right in front of your face. Yeah. yeah. You know, in, in person. Um, recently, the 1212 Project, which I'm involved with, mm-hmm. we had an exhibition out in San Jose. And Ninian, who also writes for Analog Forever, she was at the exhibition because she lives out there and she said it was just so much different and interesting. Like these are photos that she was familiar with. And when she saw it in person, it was just, it's just different. You yeah. know, I think too, it, it helps you to see even just scale. Like everyone knows the Polaroid is small, but when you see the image that you've seen online and you see it in person and it's so tiny, people are always like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Now, you mentioned the 1212 Project just a minute ago. What What is mm-hmm. that, and, and what do you do with it? Oh, um, the 1212 Project, it was started by uh, Penny Feltz, and she she was an instant photographer who got together people from literally around the world. It was like 12 people posting a theme each month, mm-hmm. and uh, it's now expanded to 24 people. It's it's a mixed gender now. It was women, just all female at the time. So, and we we post it two different times a month. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the fifteenth and the thirtieth, and we nice. there's a theme. Okay. So uh, if it's your month, you pick the theme, and then everyone shoots the photo according to that theme. Okay. Penny passed away last year, so we uh, that was part of what the twelve twelve project uh, exhibition was for was in honor of her, and I actually wrote something about her for the current issue of twelve twelve. Oh, I I guess that covers everything we've wanted to know. How how can people follow you and and uh, check out your work? 
Oh yeah. Um, Instagram at Lisa Tobos. It's just my first and last name. You can follow me on Facebook if you want. You can just do a search for Lisa Tobos. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one. It's not a, it's not a common last name. Not very, <laughs> no. <laughs> and um, my website, lisatobos.com. <laughs> you make it very simple to follow you. I like that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much. This well, was thank like, you. Thank you. This was awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Luxury camera company Leica recently brought back the M6, a 35mm rangefinder that they produced from 1984 through 2002. It seemed like huge news that a camera company, mostly producing digital cameras, decided to bring back a classic model, but what really caught everyone's attention was the price tag. When introduced in 1984, the M6 sold for around $1,700. Now, now that's about $4,600 in today's prices. With that in mind, the new $5,300 price tag of the new M6 isn't exactly shocking. If you're looking for a new 35mm camera, you'll have to settle for a plastic fantastic or so-called reusable camera from Harman or Kodak. And while they will usually run less than $100, they're still pretty overpriced for what they are. When it comes to film cameras, your choices are essentially... A shed or a mansion. A Yugo GV or a Lamborghini Countach. A rowboat. Or the yacht from Duran Duran. It's tempting to say, well, at least there's one camera company out there that has rededicated themselves to making film cameras, and this could end up saving the film community. But in the long run, will it even matter? Or is that even the question? So we decided to sit down with Jess Hobbs and Danielle, girl with too many cameras, and have a little discussion. So let's roll the tape. All right, so here we are with our very, very special guest. We got Jess. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Danielle. Hi. And Erica, obviously. I'm, yes, I'm here. I'm here. Hello. So how is everybody today? Fine and dandy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little rainy, but not complaining. So we're we're going to talk about about the, the new Leica M6. It's, it's, it's out. Everybody, uh, at least... Uh, when we were recording this, seems to be chit-chatting about it a little bit. It's making some waves. So I guess the the big question for me, just sort of thinking about the film community in general, does it matter that Leica brought back the M6, especially in light of the fact that they were already offering two film cameras? I guess my overall feelings is I just feel like this is a good sign for the film community. Like, I think Leica is, I, I would have think is a pretty smart company, a smart corporation. And I don't think they would invest the money into resurrecting a camera that hasn't been produced in a long time if they didn't think that the life of film and like the, the future of film was very strong. And I know there's been a lot of consternation with rising prices of film and everything. And um, and will that scare young people away? Is it going to cause a decline in, in, in the film world and everything? And I, so I, I just overall, I feel like this is like a good omen that that's, that's my overall feelings is I, I think it does matter and that it's like a good omen for our, our future as, as film shooters. Yeah. So if things were going South in the film community, that Leica would probably not invest in and in redoing those M6. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's, that's my thought process on it. Jess? 
I'm a little mixed. And on the one hand, maybe just because I can't afford one. So I'm kind of <laughs> like, no, it doesn't really matter. Um, and because there's so many used bodies that you can find that are still in really great shape and can still be fixed. And so, you know, in a way, why bring it back? But at the same time, it being just such an iconic model, it makes sense for Leica at least to bring it back. And like Danielle was saying, it does look good for the film community in general. Or it at least gives us a really good feeling about it. And let's face it, people who are buying Leicas are probably able to afford film. And that's what's really going to keep the film community going is people who are able to buy the film. I'm kind of right with them, honestly. And you know how I am. I'm always like for anything, film, anything. Sure. Uh, I think it says a lot about the market for the M6. I think a lot of, I think maybe like a, is wise to go, wait a minute, like how much are people buying these for? <laughs> so you think online? they looked at like the used ones and were like, oh, yeah. we could get in on this. Yes, we yeah, can. And we can make parts and we can do all sorts of stuff to mm -hmm. keep these things going, which is great. And I wish a lot of other companies would do that. I don't think they could, but I know that Leica could. And it is kind of one of those like untouchables for me right now, as far as like the price prices of, of the camera. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting. I, I really wonder what the other companies are going to do. I guess my take on it is, is, is similar. I don't think it ultimately matters to any market apart from the lightly used Leica market. And maybe if, if for parts or, or whatever, I don't think it's going to affect the film industry one way or the other. I think it's a barometer, but I don't think it's ultimately going to matter. They could have released the M6 or not released the M6 and film, I think, will be just as popular as it would have been otherwise. But like with all you were saying with other companies making cameras, people that I've been talking to have been saying things like if companies start making cameras again, that could really save the film industry and the film community. Do you folks think that is any truth to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think if the K1000 came back out, like, I'm sorry, I know a lot of people don't necessarily like that camera, but I think it's the best camera to learn how to shoot on. It's a perfect beginner camera. Yeah, that's how I learned no, to shoot. Yeah, like there's no bells and whistles. So you can just focus on learning how aperture, shutter speed, and ISO work together. Or if Nikon came back out with like the FM2 or probably the FM3, but I prefer the FM2. Uh, so I would be more interested in that one. Or Canon came back out with the F1. You know, any of these cameras, if they were able to reproduce these again, or some new version of them, because everything changes over time, everything modernizes. But if there was something like that, again, that would be at a bit more of an affordable price point for most shooters, and especially if you could still use the vintage glass, yes. then, oh my goodness, would that be a big boost, I think, for, for the film community in general. Yeah, I completely agree with Jess. And I, I ultimately, I do think that at some point, somebody's got to make new cameras because like the cameras we have now, they ain't going to last forever. And like you can repair them and everything, but eventually parts are going to get harder to source. And maybe this is like some future world, like 100 and, or 200 years off that I'm thinking about this. But like, if you don't start making new cameras at some point, all the current cameras are eventually become obsolete and won't work. And yeah. so for really for the actual like long, long term lifespan of film, yeah, new cameras have to be made at some point. And, and other companies, I do think need it. Yes, 
I do agree that other companies should not make speakers and make cameras. I think it would be really great if we would just leave that to the speaker companies to do and then just like Polaroid or whatever, just make cameras instead of those things. Well, what if Pioneer and Bose started making cameras? Would that be okay with you? Yes. Uh, Well, I did a little bit of research on some of the more popular cameras in 1982, which I think was probably like when photography was was kind of culminating in its most wonderful peak in the early 80s. It was when I was conceived. (laughs) Same here. Coincidence? Probably not. So the Pentax K1000 in 1982 went for about 200 bucks. The Olympus OM10 went for about 200. The Minolta X700, which is a really wonderful little camera, went for 250. And the Canon AE1 rang up at around 280. And so in today's prices, I adjusted for inflation, that goes from about 600 to 900 for the Canon. Those, it's expensive-ish, but I don't think a deal breaker. No. No. I wouldn't say so. Like, for instance, it's so weird to even think of just having new cameras, like film cameras, just because it's been such a digital market for so long. And it's like you buy a camera and it's like a new car where you drive it off the lot and there's like a new one with more megapixels coming out in like two months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like, I just want to, like, so we're, we're envisioning, like, what if Canon brought the AE1 back or Olympus brought back an OM10 or, or OM1? But there was 20 years of SLR development in film after those cameras, even. Like, that's true. Is that, is that really where the companies would go, or would they not go back to like Nikon doing like the N, uh, like the F100 or, or something like that, uh, moving back to maybe where the film SLRs left off before digital took mm-hmm. over? It could. I mean, bringing back like a classic, like the K1000, it looks retro. It doesn't look like a 90s SLR. I think there'd be some draw there to that, that, that retro appeal. So I think that if film companies would, would start bringing back cameras, it would, again, be more of a barometer uh, than, a, than something to save the film industry or, or save film or whatever. I think if, cam- if uh, camera companies brought back new, started making new film cameras. I don't think they would be doing that from the standpoint of we want to save the film community. I think they would be doing what Leica has probably done. I think they probably look at, we think this is a profitable measure for us. We think this is worth investing in. So I don't know if they would necessarily do it from the standpoint of saving the community. I think that we were already proving that like we we've been saved, that we we've turned the ship around and that we're going in the right direction. And at this point it's been just convincing, you know, camera makers that it's profitable to start making cameras again. I'm starting to wonder if we're kind of going to hit another bit of a dip again uh, with unfortunately the high cost of film now, um, especially color film and the lack of stock. You know, we had so many years where Fuji was just discontinuing this and discontinuing that. And Kodak took a big hit because of that, actually. Um, They had already sold off a whole bunch of their machines and stuff. And so they weren't ready to pick up the demand that was left behind as uh, Fuji was, you know, discontinuing everything. And so they just weren't ready for all of this to come back the way it did. And now color is especially popular, especially with new people. Uh, Black and white 
it's always going to be popular. I think we're all going to always have a soft spot for it in our hearts. But color really, really took off. And so did the prices. So I do think that there's got to be a little bit of a give back maybe from the film manufacturers themselves to say, okay, we know, you know, COVID happened. So supply chain management issues, it was hard to get certain raw materials or some just can't be sourced anymore. So prices had to go up for a little while, but maybe they could either meet us, maybe not quite halfway, but bring them back down a little bit. Or maybe, you know, wages could just start to go back up instead and we could all afford all the film we want to buy. But I do think that to sustain it, it's going to have to be the community buying film. I'm hearing a lot of people now saying that they're going to start using digital to replace color film or just shoot less. And I think that that's actually going to have the reverse effect of bringing demand down. And then who's going to keep making film when the demand goes down? So. I think we're at the point where it's been sustained and now we have to kind of, I don't know, pull up our socks, <laughs> roll up our pennies and, <laughs> and find the money to keep buying film. You know, I think we're at the point where it has to be the community. It has to be us who say, OK, we need to keep buying the film so that the companies keep giving us film. That's a little dangerous, too, because if the companies if the companies catch wind of this conversation, they'll be like, oh, we can raise film prices a bit more and. Well, I don't, yeah. Morally obligated <laughs> to buy from us. But I also do want to say, so we're, I know we're talking about like the rising cost of film and, and yes. how does that bode for um, the future of film and the sustainability of film. But I, so Kodak, yes, they've, they've, they've brought up the price of Portra considerably over the last couple of years. When I got into, I started shooting film in 2018. And when I started shooting film, um, I think a five pack of Portra was around like 40 bucks. So it's definitely gone up since then. But at the same time, Kodak has also brought back Kodak Gold in 120, yeah. um, giving us now. So they've raised the prices, but they've also reintroduced another stock, giving us an, uh, an affordable option for those who maybe can't afford that five pack of Portra anymore. As long as they keep putting out, you know, new or improved emulsions, you know, color or otherwise, well, mostly color, that's a good thing. You know, we we feel that our money's going somewhere rather than just. Mm-hmm. Kodak and their CEOs. If I can get other people to pay for it, that, that's that's kind of my goal is just everybody else pay for it. Yeah, that's pretty much everybody's goal is to get somebody else to pay for their film. I'm I'm fine. I'm fine with that. That seems worthy. The price of film has increased about 50% from a few years ago, maybe even more. I think, I think more for some of the emulsions. And so the folks who can afford the new M6, the rising price of film doesn't really matter. It's like buying a Maserati and worrying about gas. Is that possible, though? Would that become the norm? I, d- I think what Jess mentioned, um, I think they're going to even out, likely. I, I I mean, I actually have nothing that I'm pinning that on. That's just like, yeah, that's hope. <laughs> that they're going to even out. But, but I, you know, I, uh, James actually wrote a really great article over on Casual Photophile recently. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things that he's kind of like forever been harping on is that there it's actually like very affordable to shoot film if you do it a certain way. Like if you're somebody who's just paying attention to like the big, big YouTubers that the algorithm constantly spits out at us, like, yes, yeah, so you think you need to have like a really sexy looking camera. You need to have the hot shit gear. Well, like just go get that Minolta Maxim 5, 50 bucks on eBay, not that much money put a bunch of Kentmere through it, you know, five bucks a roll or foam a pan or whatever, as you're starting out, you know, and, or, or color plus or something equally 
um, on the cheaper end on the color side. And you can actually shoot film for, you know, really not that much money. As a YouTuber myself, I will, I, you know, I do my best to not just show off fancy cameras and expensive film. You do a very good job at that. (laughs) But I do process my film. I do scan it myself most of the time, unless I'm in a really big pinch and want to get a video out. So there's lots of ways to do it cheap. I compared it to that it could go the way uh, that horses went. 1800s, everybody had a horse for the most part. But now only the wealthy can afford to have a horse, which is a real bummer because horses are kind of cool. They are. Is Eric a horse boy? (laughs) He is. He's like a horse boy or pony boy, maybe. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I think I think how we approach photography also impacts this. I mean, if we approach it the same way that a lot of people approach digital, which is really just shooting everything you can, shoot this camera, shoot a bunch of different cameras, shoot a bunch of different emulsions, and you know, shoot as much as you can, then yeah, it's expensive and maybe a, a tad wasteful. But if you take it slow and sort of focus on photography as an art. When I when I started deciding on shots, not just like taking the shot, but really like being in the moment and really really getting into the, the into the shot, I shot a lot less. For me, as, you know, as a YouTuber, I sometimes have to shoot through rolls of film just to get through the video, and yeah. I don't think I'm creating my best work whatsoever. To be honest, I do sometimes feel like I'm wasting film because I'm just running through it to get it done. And then when I take a step back and go out with just my camera and think about things, and especially now, honestly, with four by five, wow, that has really slowed me down. (laughs) Like I'm so much more conscious of every little detail in the frame than I ever used to be. And now I'm much more selective. And so I do think that if we shoot with intention, that it will mean more. It means we're buying less film, <laughs> which is kind of against my other point. But yes, then we're at least doing making the work we want to be creating. That's the problem, isn't it? If we shoot less film, it's cheaper and we can afford to shoot film, but it's worse for the film industry. Or yeah, we just inspire cool. everyone to shoot film and yeah. get more new people into film or bring people back from the digital world and just get more people shooting film. And then it's sustainable for everyone. Uh, now it just sounds like a crazy utopia and I'll stop talking. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm going to go out and invest in an M6. It doesn't have to be like that if you want to shoot film. But I think that having a company like like a, make this decision is something I guess that I'm just like really interested to see what happens from here. Yeah. So what will happen from here? Um, I think it's actually going to be really interesting to see how this plays for Leica and and see if the other camera brands are watching and if they take note at all. Because I think actually what probably the, the biggest thing that could potentially happen is if it does turn out to be a really profitable move for Leica, I think other camera brands will notice. I think Nikon they ain't been doing good recently. Like with <laughs> the massive shift to mirrorless and, and and their flagship for forever has been DSLRs, which are now quickly tanking. You know, I think if this turns out to be a profitable endeavor for Leica to resurrect this camera, you know, that might make some, a brand like Nikon who's been struggling think like, hey, maybe this is our salvation is to resurrect like the, the F series or something. Jess, do you think that's possible? 
I really hope so. So I still have my old uh, F401S and I was gifted uh, an FE. So I would really be excited to see if Nikon would do that. And maybe Olympus is just going to sneak on back <laughs> in there. Fuji's cameras, they're not, not the Instax cameras, but their current offering of digital cameras are so rooted in a vintage aesthetic Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that it, it would make a lot of sense for them to bring back some Fujikas, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, if, if that were ever to be deemed profitable for them. So I guess we're not going to solve uh, the film community in no. one, one oh, sitting. Were we supposed to solve this I think problem? We, yeah, we did we were, task ourselves with us. that. So I think what really needs to happen is other companies need to follow what Leica's doing. So I came into this kind of, I'm not a big Leica fan. I, I, I'm not a big Leica fan fan, maybe. And so I kind of came into this with like a little grumbly, like, uh, fucking Leica, of course. who cares? Eric's always grumbly about something. I'm seeing it as in a, in a bit of a different light now. I never saw it as a bad thing. I, I kind of saw it as like a neutral. It it literally does not matter. Nothing that that they're doing here matters. And I I don't I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. We changed his mind. <laughs> I'm more than happy to change my mind if I'm wrong about something. But no, I think I think I was a little maybe prejudicial about this one. Definitely, you were. Thank you, Jess, and thank you, Danielle, so much for dropping by for this uh, lovely little discussion. I hope they come back. Are you guys going to come back? I, li- I like this format. I think we should do more uh, square table discussions. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. I agree. I agree with this. Something we have always talked about and will continue to hound you about is to get your work out on print. And one way to do that is through zines. Well, you're right, Vanya. It, it is time for a zine review. What you got for us? Well, I have Moving Emma to Philadelphia by Vera Benshop. So yeah, I recently picked up a few zines and over the next several episodes, I'll be reviewing them one by one. I'm very excited about these. So let's start with Moving Emma to Philadelphia. This is a mostly color zine made up of photos taken while Vera moved her sister, Emma, to Philly. They did it with their parents, too. I think they went home first and then drove with their parents from, I think, Chicago to Philadelphia, which is a a trip that I've done myself. And this was uh, kind of like a family trip. So the zine starts with a few road photos, but quickly throws you into Emma's new and very empty apartment. We then walk around her new neighborhood, and it's honestly very, very peak Philly. That strange mix of green trees and vacant lots of of repurposed buildings and like a line of the back doors of row houses. Mm. I never lived in Philly, but I was in the city quite a bit. And while prone to fits of nostalgia and homesickness, this doesn't really place me in that frame of mind. This isn't a nostalgic look at Philly. It isn't how I would photograph Philly, for example. It's like an introduction, a first exploration. It's uh, like like Philly, it's welcoming and off-putting all at the same time. And it kind of makes me miss Philadelphia. The layout of this zine, it's, it's interesting with some photos overlapping, though not in like a disordered collage sort of way. There's a method here and it's very much her own. Zines like this make me reassess my own publications and I love when that happens. Sometimes you'll see a zine and you'll be like, okay, this is fine. It's a zine. And then other times it really makes you kind of rethink how you're doing your whole thing. Mm-hmm. I get that a lot, honestly. It's, it's inspiring, though. I'm, I get excited when yeah, when I sure. get a, a, a zine in the mail, and it's and it surprises me. I think I need that sometimes, so I'm glad we're getting these zines in. Uh, 
So so Vera runs Bench Shop Books. It's a small press where she releases mostly her own work, but also zines and books of other photographers. In the press's bio, she writes that she hopes to keep publishing affordable and accessible art is for everyone. And it's shit like that that just makes my heart all fluttery. I love oh, it. Oh, I know it. <laughs> oh my God, I fucking love that. Because it should be. Art should be accessible. Of course. And I love it when, that's what I love about zines, books. I love photography books, but I mean, they can be like fucking 60 to $100. And yeah. maybe you can afford one once in a while, but you know, zines, you know, hopefully eight to maybe 15 bucks. And that's, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. So most of the books and zines there, they seem to be handmade or at least hand bound and they're all short runs. So you know, get them while you can. The press is on IG at, at, at a Ben shop books and that's B E N S C H O P books. And Vera is Vera Ben shop. There's also benshopbooks.com and we'll have the link in the show notes and all of that wonderful stuff. So we're very happy about this and you know, Get some zines, get some inspiration, and do some zines on your own. Maybe the second best reason to buy zines. Yeah, maybe you'll pick something up and you'll get inspired and want to do your own. I think that was like one of the fun things about zines, you know, picking them up when you're younger and then just getting like super excited, like, oh my God, I want to do this. I'm like pumped. Like, yeah. I need to make a zine. Like, this is what I'm going to do now. This is, this is my calling. <laughs> <laughs> All Through a Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we're able to afford to keep the podcast running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment, for hiring Britney Spears to do outgoing messages. It helps us buy books for research and zines to review. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you. We couldn't make this podcast without you. And we've got three new patrons since last episode. It's amazing. We've got Lisa TL, we've got Timmy E, and Stephen M. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get monthly bonus episodes, full-length interviews. Like the interview with Lisa this episode. And also, I'm thinking about uh, releasing the full-ish version of the conversation we had with Danielle and Jess. So we got a two-for-one deal this time Nice. So also random posts and photos and, of course, much more extra nonsense. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. Oh, Vanya, it no. looks like we've somehow squirreled our way through another episode. We did. I don't Very know how squirrely. We this one happened, but here it is. It is. What are you up to next week? Well, so I did mention earlier that I've been fiddling around with the Rolly Marine, and I almost have it. Okay. <laughs> almost. It's kind of a nightmare. Um, it is... I just, I'm not really good with like machiney stuff, you know, like I just need somebody to help me with a few things. But for the most part, I got the trigger to work. Um, I put it in the water. I got some shots. Uh, it somehow turned out that the speed turned to eighth of a second instead of like 125th was what I was trying to shoot for. So oh, okay. the pictures kind of 
didn't come out the way that as planned, but it was really kind of just like getting it in the water and like trying to take a shot. So I did do that. It did work. I got something. So yay for that. Um, now I just have to tweak it and get it perfect. I did notice there was a tiny bit of condensation inside and I got a very interesting tip from a pro photographer to stick some tampons in my housing. And I was like, why didn't I not think of that? It's a perfect thing because I don't want to use those things. So yeah, all those tampons are going to start going into my water housings. And if anything leaks, then hopefully they'll it'll get sopped up with those motherfuckers. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like excited. It's It's obviously not like a very functional housing. I think the point is that I just need to get it working because I can't just have something that I didn't try. I really want to make sure that I can get it in the water. I think it would be really, really fun to get it out there and shoot occasionally, but you know, this takes a roll of flex. It only takes the 120 film. So it's uh 12 exposures. That's it. <laughs> and it, it is about maybe 10 to 15 pounds and wow. it does not have any buoyancy in the water. It actually sinks all the way to the bottom. Uh, which is good for diving. I don't need yeah. to wear weights, no. but uh, if I drop it, <laughs> That's true. the color the color of it is the same color as the ocean, so it's going to be difficult. I need to put like a red flag on it. Well, something. do you have a leash? I do. Okay, I do, but it needs. I need like a floaty or something. I need something else on there just to make sure that like I've never dropped my housing before. But you know, well, it's not heavy enough to take you down, right? No, no, no. I can okay. swim with it, but it is much more difficult to swim than with the Pentax. That oh, one bet. floats. So I have buoyancy mm -hmm. and I kind of just stick that out in front and use that to steer and I just kick my feet and go. Um, but yeah, winter's coming. Uh, swells are coming. Things are going to get stronger. So I need to get stronger. So I need to work <laughs> out these, these leg muscles and get them in tip top shape. Also, mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I'm using both hands with this housing because it is so heavy. Oh, so I'm going to end up with like some creepy, like giant, like monster arm. Yeah, you don't want a Trogdor situation happening to you, no. Trogdor strikes again! No, but I do, like a lot of people have um, sent me the video of, I think it's like, his name's Sven, and Sven sent me it too, of his Hasselblad. And he even has a digital back for that, which is great. Um, so he's able to like use that in all sorts of manners. And that's really kind of amazing. And that housing looks a lot more difficult than mine, just seeing the mechanics of it while he loads it in the video. Mm -hmm. I would like to make a video like that, but I'm really bad at that. So if anybody wants to come and shoot it, cool, let's do it. But yeah, it's just neat. It's a beautiful piece of history. It's, it's exactly why I am who I am. I love old shit. I love film. I love old cameras. I like getting old cameras to work. I mean, it's kind of like a match made in heaven. So I'm quite happy. <laughs> Besides having to deal with editing my stupid voice, what else do you have this week to do? Well, I mean, honestly, not a whole lot. I want to get out, but a lot of me doesn't want to get out. I'm kind of mulling over if I should take a break this winter or not. And, you know, if I keep thinking about it for a few more months, I won't have to make a decision. You're right. You yeah. can start just thinking about what you're going to do in the summer instead. Well, Vanya, is there anything else we have to tell them? Thanks for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. 
by email, itsallthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian on Instagram and at Silver Waves of Grain on Granary. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers on Instagram and at cons of cart on greenery. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you can find podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you all so much for listening. We love you. And we'll see you next week at Dev Party. Um, Vanya. Uh, yeah. Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. It was like a round table, except like it's not round in the more. It's more of a square table. It's like a six by six table. Or is it? It's not a rule of thirds. It's halvesies. <laughs> Sorry, guys.